This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. <laughs> did, did real good on a lead chair and a, a solo chair. So, but we know him mostly as a writer. And let me introduce Elliot Deutsch. <laughs> I'm supposed to stand this far away. I've been told. Yeah. So, he's, yeah, he's demonstrated his two fists. So, <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting ready to fight ghosts that are really okay. Anyways, um, so I'm going to introduce a friend of mine. Um, and uh, he, he's right here. No, for those of you that don't know, this is Dave Black. And um, let, me t- let me tell you a few things about him in case you don't know Dave already. Um, he is a graduate of Cal State Northridge, studied with Louis Belson and the great Joel Leach and many other people, and has, has performed and recorded with a lot of great artists, including Anita O'Day and our own Kim Richmond wherever he went. Um, I can't see anybody, so as far as I know, Kim just left, um, but I doubt it. Um, he received a whole bunch of awards, including some ASCAP Popular Composer Awards, has participated on two Grammy-nominated albums and, and got those coveted gold leaf certificates hanging in his office, and he um, has written a bunch of music on TV shows like All My Children and The Drew Carey Show and General Hospital and many, many more. He's written a whole bunch of pieces and in addition has authored a bunch of uh, educational books, including Alfred's Drum Method book, books one and two, which are currently the best-selling book, best-selling drum method books. Um, He's a fine drummer himself. He's written a bunch of articles for uh, Modern Drummer and Downbeat and just does way too much and we all hate him. And probably um, most importantly for what he's gonna be talking about here today is he's uh, vice president and editor-in-chief of school and church publications for Alfred Music Publishing Company. Um, This is Dave Black. Thank you. Thank you. And and he's a a member of the board of directors of ASMAC. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to thank ASMAC. I want to thank Jeannie Poole for initially asking me to uh, appear uh, for this luncheon. I want to thank the board for allowing me um, to serve on the board of directors. Um, you have no idea what you've gotten yourselves into, but yeah, two two fists. Oh, am I um, too close? You're too close. Okay, how's that? Uh, that you were that's one good. fist. No, that's good. Okay. That's close enough. Um, so I'm excited to be here, and like Elliot said, I am currently Vice President and Editor-in-Chief and the Acquisition Editor for the Percussion Catalog. Uh, I've been with Alfred Publishing now for 31 years. I actually started when I was 10. <laughs> you fell for that, didn't you? <laughs> Look at you. No, and so um, it, it's been a great ride, um, but let me tell you a, a little bit about Alfred Music if you don't know anything about it. Alfred Music is the second largest print music publisher in the world. 
calendar is number one. We're the number one educational music publisher. They're the number one pop music publisher. Um, Alfred was started in 1922 on um, 45th Street in Manhattan in the Tin Pan Alley days. Uh, our two original copyrights that actually put us on the map are Waiting for the Robert E. Lee and um, Ragtime Cowboy Joe. Um, the number of uh, offices we have, we have uh, one in our main offices in LA, we have one in New York, Australia, uh, Germany, Singapore, England, and we currently have, oh, I, I would say over 150,000 active titles. So it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, big publishing company. And my job has kind of changed over the years. I started off as an editor, then moved up to uh, director of instrumental music, then editor-in-chief, and then vice president. So my current job responsibilities are um, I oversee, I co-lead the largest division of Alfred Music, which is the church and pop division. And so I manage all the acquisition editors. They all report to me. So the jazz band editor, the concert band editor, string editor, the guitar department, uh, Suzuki, all of those folks report to me. And so my job is not only to manage them, but to help with um, their budgets, to help them with ideas, uh, to work with them on um, content, um, on setting um, kind of our, our house standards and stuff. And so uh, it allows me to be still very creative and um, you know be able to have my own stamp in terms of what we publish and what we don't. So let's go into some of the, um, I, I kind of have what I call the nuts and bolts and some of the current challenges in uh, music educational publication. I, I'm just curious, does anyone um, have any idea what the percentage might be for uh, the number of unsolicited manuscripts that we publish? Anybody want to take a percentage guess? No? It's, okay, it's less. Zero percent. Yeah, that's good. That's my guess. Yeah, don't quit your day gig. Okay. Um, Alfred, and most actually uh, educational music publishers, it's less than 1% of all of unsolicited manuscripts that actually get published, which means that we have a staple of writers that we continue to use um, over the years and stuff, people who have proven to themselves and proven to us or whatever that they're capable of writing in the style that we like, at the grade level we like. 20% um, of our company titles bring in 80% of the entire company's revenue. Uh, digital printing has allowed us to keep things in print that uh, would otherwise have been discontinued. There, you'll hear me talk a lot about the negative side of uh, the digital age and, and what's going on with that, but the one positive side is that we are able to keep books in print almost indefinitely. I think. Uh, we discontinue them probably when they hit 10 copies or less. But used to when we had to do everything um, offset printing, you'd have to print a certain number of units in order to get a halfway decent print price. And so books and performance music would be discontinued when it hit you know 200 copies or 300 copies. Well, those numbers can continue to go on for years and years and years and we could, could never do it. So now we, we print everything digitally when we can. We brought back things that have been discontinued because they, like I said, they can sell 100 copies for years and it has enabled us to literally make millions of dollars just 
on revenue from publications that were discontinued or that we've been able to keep in, in print as a result of the digital print. Um, one of the challenges that we all have in the educational market is that we have an oversaturated market. Uh, just to give you an example, with concert band performance music, there are over 700 new concert band pieces published a year. That makes it very difficult for any you know, uh, junior high, high school band director, choral director to listen to 700 pieces of new music. It's just it's nearly impossible. Um, the educational music publishing marketing it, market is shrinking between two and four percent a year. Uh, because of the shrinking market, we no longer have the luxury of being able to publish simply to fill a void in our catalog or you know, to do it for political reasons. Um, digital downloading and sharing of music materials is part of the reason the market is shrinking, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, you know, one of the areas where it's being hit the most is, you know, staples such as piano chord dictionaries, guitar chord dictionaries, scales, books, um, manuscript paper, all those things that have been staples for many, many years have, have pretty much died off at this point because you have free apps that you can get chords and scales and everybody's got Finale or Sibelius, so they make their own manuscript paper. So a lot of those uh, kind of core products have kind of gone by the wayside as a result of uh, the technological things that are available for, for free. Um, I think we all know that you know the traditional brick and mortar um, music stores and businesses are shrinking at a, an alarming rate. Uh, J.W. Pepper was uh, for many, many years um, our largest um, music retailer. Now that uh, title goes to Amazon which is now the number one retailer in the world for anything. Um, so it, the, 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 the music stores are shrinking and, and Amazon is taking over more of that business. Um, so let me, you know, one of the questions obviously I get a lot is, is a person in publishing and is an acquisition editor is what should uh, rangers and authors know before approaching a publisher with their material? Um, I think one of the, there, there are several things, but one of the, the critical things for me is that, you know, make sure that you research the publishers pretty carefully. Um, I'm always um, amazed at the number of books I get that uh, are titled like My Family and the Mafia and, and so on. I mean, it, it just shows you that people didn't even do the research to find out, well, who's a music publisher, who's not a music publisher. So do your research, find out where the music publishers are, what kind of music that they're looking for um, before you start sending out um, manuscripts. Um, the other thing is that, you know, research the material that you're submitting. I, I have to, to laugh sometimes because, you know, over the years, um, you know, every letter that comes across my desk usually starts with a sentence like, you know, I've never seen anything like this on the market and, you know, everybody's encouraging me to, to submit this for publication and I look at it and I go, okay, you've never seen anything like this on the market. You must not be looking very hard. So the, the, the point being is that I think a lot of people don't do the research as to what's out there and what's not out there. If you're going to submit to a major publisher, you should 
take the time to go to their website. You can go to a, a music store and check the racks. You can go to Sheet Music Plus. You can go to any number of sites or whatever to see what kind of books are out there that you're considering. The other thing that needs to happen is that if you're going to write a book that's already, uh, that topic has already been explored, what is different about the book that you're doing that's different than anything out there? What, what, what is the new element that you're bringing to? What is going to make people switch from whatever it is that they're using to what you are now publishing? Um, and so I think if you do that kind of research, whatever, you have a much better chance of getting something in because now you can say, look, you know, I know there's other books uh, out there like that, but th these are the reasons why mine are different. And sometimes, you know, it, it's just a matter of we don't publish something simply because we already have enough of that material in our catalog and we, we don't need it. And so it's, it's not sometimes whether the publication is good or bad, it's just that we already have enough of that. Um, I encourage people also to contact the publishers and ask what are they looking for rather than just kind of stabbing in the dark and, and assuming that they want this particular book. I'm fine with answering emails or taking calls of, of someone who says, look, you know, I'm interested in writing a, a book um, with on this topic or whatever. Do you, does Alfred have anything in their library currently? Are you interested in something like this? If so, what, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that I need to do? It saves us a lot of time. It saves the person who's writing the piece of music or the book a lot of time just in, you know, just, and just randomly sending things out and, and not really having any, you know, concrete answers or, or questions. Um, so I'm fine. I mean, if everybody, if somebody wants to ask me um, that question, I'm more than happy to discuss it. Um, if you're a composer, I always encourage, and you want to submit a concert band piece, a jazz band piece, a string orchestra piece, I highly recommend that you go to the publisher's website and listen to what they publish or ask the publisher to send a free um, promotion for that year for, you know, concert band or whatever, so that you really get an idea of what that company is publishing. Every publisher is a little bit different. I mean, um, you know, they, they publish, you know, different styles, different grade levels. All of them have slightly different criteria. If you're writing in the grade one level or the grade two, you know, uh, clarinet can't go beyond the break at this level. You can't go above a G trumpet at this level. So I, I think it's impressive when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I, I took the time to listen to your recordings. I kind of know uh, what kind of things you like and don't like. I, I've kind of researched the ranges or whatever. That tells me that, you know, they did their research. They're serious about getting published. And I, th I think that it's a great way to kind of determine where you want to send your particular publications because Hal Leonard may be a slightly different um, than what we're looking for. So that's really helpful. It's a, it's a great opportunity just to get a gist of what that publisher is publishing. Um, if you're going to write books, another interesting fact is that uh, beginning man band methods, supplemental books, and performance music sell far more at the intermediate and advanced levels than they do beginning. If you're going to write anything, my suggestion is that you write beginning band music, beginning drum books, beginning guitar books, because everybody starts off as a beginner, beginning band, beginning guitar. I think, you know, once they get past the first year, they either 
decide that maybe music is not their thing, or they've got enough skills or knowledge to um, teach themselves, you know, the, the, the rest of the way, or they switch instruments, but everybody starts with a beginning band piece, beginning instrument piece. And so the, the you know, the, the difference between the two is enormous. Like I said, book two typically sell 25% of what book ones do. So if you have a book that sells 100,000 copies, book two is only going to sell 25% of that, even though you've got a book that's selling 100,000 copies. So um, the, 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 the figures are, are pretty consistent all the way across the board. Um, you know, a lot of times I get asked, you know, how we pick music, what are, what are the criteria, uh, uh, and so on. And I think it's funny, I think sometimes people think that, you know, the, the um, acquisition editors are in their white ivory towers and like Karnak, they hold up the, uh, the, the piece and they kind of decide, okay, am I going to do this? Do I like this or not? But there's really a lot of thought that goes into this process. I think the one thing that uh, I try and, um, you know, reiterate is the fact that I'm an employee of Alfred Music. My job, bottom line, is to make money for Alfred Music. So that's my first priority. So then you take that and within all the things that come across my desk, what is it that I like within those things that I think will also work for Alfred Publishing? That's where the major decisions are. There are a lot of pieces and books that have come across my desk over the years that I thought were great pieces of music, I thought were great books or whatever, but I knew wouldn't sell more than 10 copies and passed on it. So it's not always a matter of whether a piece of music is good uh, or a book is good or whatever. It's just what do I think will work for Alfred music? And within that crop of things or whatever, this is what I'm going to go with. Um, and a lot of people, you know, will ask, I mean, are you looking for somebody full-time? Are you looking for, you know, uh, a one-time submission? I think our goal as a publisher, I think most publishers would say the same thing, is that we're not looking for the one-hit wonders. I mean, to publish something, a book or whatever, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of expense. There's a lot that goes into it. And so if you're going to take the chance with somebody and publish their their work or whatever you want to know that you they can be able to contribute to the catalog on an ongoing basis so you know if you've trained them in you know this is what our ranges are for this level and this is how many page parts are at this level and this is the how we uh, notate things and this is what our house style is or whatever you, you, if you're grooming them and taking a chance on them you want to be able to uh, know that they can uh, contribute to your catalog year after year. So that's why we try and really go after people or stick with people who we know can write on a consistent basis year after year so that we don't have to keep reinventing the will and we know that they understand um, what the teachers want, they understand what the publisher wants and what works and whatever, and you know, it's kind of an automatic pilot. Um, so the other thing, and we've kind of talked about how we, um, what we look for in publications and stuff. Now we kind of have, uh, uh, I have a thing here on how to actually submit the publication. Um, and it, this sounds strange, but make sure that you include a cover letter. You'd be surprised how many people will just put, you know, a CD and a, a piece of music in an envelope 
with no letter of any kind that says, you know, this is what kind of piece it is, this is who I am. Um, I always try and encourage people to address it to the uh, appropriate either person or the catalog rather than just Alfred submissions. Try and do the research and find out who the editor is or, or what department it is. I think it, it, you have a much greater chance of it getting to the right person if it's, if it's done that way. Um, don't send the original copy of your score or, or book. Now I know it's a little... Is that a problem anymore? Do, do, do people have original copies? Of no, it's can't. not a problem as much because everything is finale and whatever, but there are the older composers and stuff who aren't tech savvy that um, still write in hand or whatever and you know 15, 10 years ago whatever it was a problem because they would send their original manuscript if it got lost or we sent it back and it got lost then that was it. So I just encourage everybody to send a, a, a copy of what they have. Uh, I always encourage, especially if it's a performance piece, to include a recording. If somebody like me has to sit down at a piano and stumble through you know, a score or whatever to try and, and, and come up with an idea of, no, I'm a little more proficient than that. That's, that's, that's you. That's how I do it. The, the, two this, notes at once. Yeah. Two index fingers. It, it just doesn't, it, it just doesn't, um, it doesn't, doesn't shed a good light on that piece or whatever. If you've got a recording, even if it's from Finale Files or whatever, at least the editor gets a, a, a fair chance of listening to how the parts work. What, what, where is it going? How is it doing it? But if we have to sit down and actually try and play it ourselves or whatever, it's, it's almost as good as dead. So um, and then um, include a self-addressed stamp, stamp envelope because you know, the economy has shrunk um, over the years whenever we no longer have the funds to send back every manuscript that ever comes to us or whatever. So we say, you know, if you want your manuscript back, please include uh, a self-addressed stamp envelope for its return. Otherwise, we just um, basically throw that away. Um, don't submit to one publisher, more than one publisher at a time. That's a big no-no and a lot of people do that and the reason why we don't like that is because if I'm sent something to look at and maybe it takes a couple months or a few weeks for me to to get to it and look at it and I finally do and I say wow you know I, I kind of like this I think I want to do this reach out to the composer or the author who sent it and it's like oh I'm sorry I'm thrilled that you like it but you know I, I sent it to Hal Leonard too and they've already accepted it two weeks ago that, that leaves a really bad uh, impression um, to, you know, for me and any other editor. It's really better to send it to one publisher, wait till you get a response from them, and then move on to um, the next one. And then please don't tell us that it's the greatest piece or book ever written. That's another no-no. So anyway, let me stop there at that, at that point or whatever. Are there any questions or comments or whatever that you guys have? We do. The, the question is, do we accept email submissions and scores? We, we, we do. They'll send the finale files or a PDF of it and uh, MP3 files or whatever. And, um, Sibelius too. I mean, we primarily prefer um, finale, but we do, you know, can switch it over. We do have um, Sibelius uh, capabilities. Yes? Are you more or less likely to get attention to it if it's sent electronically or through a physical score? Um, I think well, that's a good question because it, it's happening 
um, equal now. It used to be the, tip, the, the scale was tipped in favor of um, you know, sending a hard copy, whatever, but anymore, it's, everybody's doing it. The only, for me personally, I would rather have it sent through the mail because I have a physical object on my desk. I know it's there. I know I have to deal with it. If it comes in my regular email chain, whatever, where I'm getting 200 emails a day, whatever, eh, I, I, you know, may have forgotten to put it in, in, in a submit folder or may forget to mark it as unread or something. So I think the safest way, for me at least, is just to um, send it. But um, certainly sending it electronically is the most economical and uh, that's the way we do business. I mean, when we publish something and it's um, engraved. I mean, all the proof copies are sent back and forth electronically, and so are the uh, recordings and, and and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's all pretty much automated at this point. Yes. Oh, would, would you submit both, both hard copy and email? Is it safer to do that? If, if for I, I would say yes, because I'm the kind of person that it's like, okay, I'm going to try and you know, put as much out there as I can in, in any way that it can be seen or, or looked at or whatever, the, the greater the chances are what the way I want to go. So yeah, you're going to hit them both ways. Yes? If you're doing electronically, is it preferable to use it to send it to Valley File or a PDF? Um, it depends. If, it's, if you have a recording, like if it's done with a real orchestra or band or whatever, then I would send a PDF and the recording. If there's no recording and we're trying to listen to it based on the finale files, then you have to send the files or whatever so that we can actually hear what the piece sounds like. Yeah, that, that works all the time. If you've got a separate recording um, that's a real recording, that's preferable, but if you want us to listen to the piece based on the finale files, then you, you have to send the files. I mean, do, do you have finale on your personal computer at work? I do. Okay, so that, so it's safe for you. Like, I've, I've always assumed when I'm sending somebody a score that I've worked on that they don't have the same, at least, version of whatever program I'm using. So I always send a PDF just to be safe, even if they ask me for the original Sibelius or finale file. Yeah, I, I, I do, and sometimes if it... Because anyone can open a PDF. Right. Yeah. Um, no, it is a good thing. I mean, it's, it's funny that you, you mentioned that because I think some of our best-known writers are people who started out as band directors and stuff, and they usually make the best composers for school band music and orchestra music because they know what the limitations of a, a, a kid is. They know the pitfalls that, you know, that all happen. They know what works and what doesn't, what sounds good at that age level and what doesn't. So yeah, it's definitely uh, a plus. And because that's our market, we want people who are in the trenches uh, teaching or whatever to submit or whatever, because probably if you write a piece or whatever and you've performed it several times with your band or orchestra, you've tweaked it after the first time or whatever. Something w didn't work quite as well, so you went back and you fixed it or something. Y you know what I mean? You, you listened to it, you made the necessary adjustments for that particular grade level or whatever you wanted to do. And so now it's kind of been kit tested and stuff. And yeah, it, it makes a big difference. Somebody here, yes. We have, um, well, we have two levels. We have exclusive authors or composers and there's probably five or six of those. And those are the ones that would get specific assignments, whether they're pop assignments or original pieces. Then there are a whole staple um, worth of composers or whatever who 
are not under contract as uh, an exclusive writer, that um, there's probably um, 10 or so in, e in each thing, 10 choral, 10 string, 10 band or whatever, who have proven themselves over the years in terms of sales, um, being able to meet deadlines in terms of getting their pieces in, um, you know, and have had success over the years or whatever. I mean, like I said, the goal is to make money for Alfred. And, you know, quite frankly, you would listen to some of the, you know, smaller pieces or whatever, and, you know, some of them might be a little hokey. Some of them, you know, I, you know might be um, arrangements of pop tunes because they're watered down. They don't sound really great or whatever. But if they sell, there's a market for it, and, you know, we'll continue to do that. It's a business. The royalties, the, um, the standard... Royalty rate for Hal Leonard, for us, for anybody, is 10% of the retail price. And we'll talk about, I, I mean, I have another section here that is, it talks about going with a publisher versus self-publishing and what those differences are. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people, without really thinking through the whole process, will think 10% of retail price. Wow, the publishing company is making a lot of money, but... There's so much work that is involved from, you know, engraving and the artwork for the cover and the printing costs and the cost to, you know, go into a studio and record it and um, to send it out, to print it, to market it. It's just an enormous um, cost. And the advantage of, uh, of actually going with the publisher and, and you know, the 10% rate is that the author or composer is going to get paid from the very first piece that's sold it doesn't mean that the company has made money. The company may print a thousand band pieces and maybe they need to sell 750 in order to break even. Maybe they only sell 500 or 400. Author has got gotten paid for each of those 400 pieces, but the publisher didn't make their money back. So there, there, there is an advantage there. Yes, sir. Uh, you can. I mean, we're pretty much, you know, standard in middle of the road things. Anything that's really esoteric uh, or not mainstream or whatever, it, it kind of doesn't happen much anymore. And that, uh, let me just qualify that by saying that that didn't used to be the case. I mean, when the uh, economy was healthier, when the industry was healthier, when schools were healthier, we could afford to do you know, um, more, um, you know, out-of-the-box kind of pieces or whatever and be fine with it because we knew that the rest of the catalog would uh, would carry that. But anymore, whatever, it's everything's got to be, it has to be a home run. And so uh, I wouldn't uh, discourage you from sending it because even though we may not want it, what, what you're doing by sending it is you're at least letting us hear what you've done. And, and so even though we may not you know, be able to publish that particular piece, you've now made a connection with an author, whatever, who, or I mean, a, a, an editor who may enjoy your writing, may see a lot of potential there, whatever, and so they may not take that piece, but they may re might reach out to you for something else or might say, you know, I like your style or I like your writing well enough to, to ask you to consider, um, you know, submitting, you know, down the line. So, anything else before? Yes. Uh, yeah, we have, you know, um, Alfred, um, our, we have several catalogs. We have, um, we're the exclusive print publisher for uh, the Gershwin catalog called Porter. 
uh, Wizard of Oz. Um, we have The Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin. I mean, a whole bunch of um, some of Billy Strayhorn's stuff. We would consider doing that if it's a copyright that we own. If we, it's either going to be Hal Leonard or Alfred that own the majority of the copyrights. And we try not to go outside of Alfred or whatever to get one. Because if we go to Hal Leonard and say, can we license this for a jazz band tune that we're, we want to do or whatever, you know, they're going to come back and say, well, we want one of your a, um, you know, copyrights and stuff. And, you know, they're our competitors. So we just normally don't do that. But we do do it. It's like um, with Elliot's. Um, Record he did, what was the Willie Pure Walker? Imagination. Pure Imagination. He had already done that for his album, whatever, and I heard it and I said, well, you know, we own the copyright to that, so why not publish that piece or whatever? We had the recording, he already had the, the piece done, and so we did it in, in a heartbeat. Um, anything else? Yes. Um, it's not maxed out. I mean, the normal lifespan for major methods like piano methods, band methods, those kinds of things are about once every 10 years. Um, but I will tell you that those are the staples of any publishing company and those are the ones that have legs and that keep on selling. Um, you come up with a good method, um, something that catches hold or whatever, and it, it'll go on for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and so those are the ones that you want to write. And, and particularly because teachers like piano, pri uh, private piano teachers and stuff, I mean, they teach 25, 30 students a year. The great thing about a method book is that if you've got that many students, you're going to make them purchase that book every year. So every year you're going to make those beginners or intermediate students buy 25 or, or 30 books. The problem with like an, an MI book, a pop book, uh, um, you know, something like that, it's, it, it's a one-time sell. It's for the end user, for the 14-year-old guitar player, drummer, whatever it is, and you're going to sell that, that one book. If it's an educational method type of book or whatever, you've got a lot of students to, to buy those year after year. Yes? Uh, we, yeah, there are, we, I mean, books on how to do those, do we publish those? Oh, we have many, many um, books or whatever, because we pub, um, when we bought Warner Brothers, Along with that came the um, Warner catalog, the Bellwin Mills catalog, the Columbia Picture Publications catalog, and so on. So we own like uh, the Henry Mancini arranging book and the Nelson Riddle and uh, Earl Hagen and John Kakabus. And so there are many, many uh, arranging and orchestration books that we publish that are um, for that. We, you know, we're the exclusive publisher for the Dover um, catalog. Um, Eighth Note Publications, um, it, it, it goes on and on. So yeah, there, there are a lot of um, books that you know are for writing or orchestration and arranging. So you're not looking for any books? Well, that's a good question. Look, look, yeah, well that, 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 that's a, a valid question. I mean, what we're looking for is something that is unique, something that is going to appeal to whatever the current market is. And I can tell you that it's becoming harder and harder to find that. Um, like I said, it's, you know, the, there's an old joke about drummers and drum books and stuff. Do we really need another drum book? My answer is probably not, unless it's got something that's unique. The problem with 
the generation and the market that we have now is the fact that no student, like when we were growing up, wants to study or practice out of a dry book. It's got to have some kind of interactive software or a mechanism involved. It's got to have uh, you know, a CD, a DVD. It's got to be downloadable stuff. It's got to be uh, animated or whatever because somebody's just not going to pick up a dry book and, and do that anymore. So it becomes harder and harder now with in terms of an arranging book and stuff, you know, you can't do much better than, you know, Sammy Nestico and Henry Mancini and stuff. So in, in that case or whatever, I would publish it if it was somebody who was really well known. If, um, you know, Pat Williams wanted to do something or um, Jorge Calandrelli or whatever, somebody who's really you know, in, in that, or if John Williams wanted to write a new book, or whatever, I, I do it in a heartbeat. But like I said, it, it, it's not whether the book is good or not, it's whether there's an audience there. And unfortunately, it's a one time sale. You've got a, a book that's that thick that's going to sell for $39 or $49.99. Most students aren't going to be able to afford it. And if they do, they're going to buy the book and they're going to have it for years. It's not a repeat um, kind, kind of a purchase. And the other problem is, you know, you used to have to go to those dictionaries or books and whatever to get instrument ranges and voicings and stuff. And there's so much free content on the Internet now in terms of uh, apps and downloadable material and material that's just been put up there on, you know, for free that nobody buys the books, unfortunately. Does that kind of answer your question? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He says he, he teaches composition to children, but doesn't know what to teach them in terms of getting their pieces published. Well, you, I mean, there's an angle right there that is a good one. The books that we've been talking about are, are, have been professional level arranging and composition books or whatever. Maybe you have a good idea in terms of doing a, a book that's geared towards young kid composing and how to put those steps together, whatever, it, it's a good angle. I mean, maybe that's something that's uh, worth pursuing. Um, but most of the people, I mean, most of the things at that level, there's just not a whole lot. It's mostly in the ORF field or early childhood or um, classroom materials. It's not uh, typically in the general, um, you know, composition and orchestration um, part of the catalog that we have. Um, again, just uh, the market and stuff, I mean, you know, uh, ORF, classroom, early childhood, or whatever, a lot of those um, organizations and teachers don't use books to teach from. They use call and answer responses like drum circles. They have instruments that they, they show and the, the students are learning by rote, by imitation and, and so on. So it's, it's not something that they teach out of a book. They may have a classroom book that has um, you know, match the, the, the numbers or match the instrument to the name or whatever is a supplemental thing, but they just don't teach out of books per se at that level. Yeah, there, there is a market for smaller ensembles, but unfortunately the market is for, you know, all the good ones that are already out there. We do not publish um, any new, you know, flute ensembles, sax ensembles, or whatever, because we have so much of it in the Bellwin um, catalog and, and things that have happened before and again it becomes an economic thing I could certainly do 
Um, you know, like this year, for example, I stopped publishing percussion ensemble pieces, steel drum pieces, whatever, because they were selling 50 copies a year. And some of those were big copyrights and stuff. And it just wasn't, even though I could, you know, price them accordingly, even though I could print them digitally, whatever, it just didn't make financial sense or whatever. And so I stopped. And it's the same thing with that, that type of catalog and music or whatever. There's a need for it. It's great to have, but... It, it, the, the sales are so small or whatever, it just, it's just not worth, you know, uh, us going in that direction. And all the publishers, or the, all the major publishers are the same, whether it's Choth or um, FJH or HAL or whatever, where you're going to find those kind of things are the smaller um, niche kind of publishers who um, specialize in like steel band stuff or uh, small ensemble things or whatever. And I would start there because that's what they're, that's what, what they're focusing on. Uh, there is a slight difference or whatever, and we, because we have offices in, in Germany and England, you know, we're always talking with them in terms of hey, there are certain things that we can publish that don't work in the European market, especially if it contains um, songs that are uh, American-oriented or uh, patriotic. Um, and they have um, probably a, a much larger um, interest in like brass bands and small ensembles and orchestral things or whatever that we we don't have but part of that to be honest is because you know they uh, the government subsidizes the arts there and stuff and they encourage that and you know uh, you know support those performances and and those schools and stuff we we don't have that but uh, I would say the brass band market is the biggest difference difference. We don't really have that in our country. It's very limited, but brass bands are huge in um, Europe and stuff, and so there are several publishers there that publish that. You've got Faber, who's a big publisher there that um, does all the classical type of, of things, and that's very big transcriptions, classical repertoire. Um, it's not so much here. So, um, No, because you would send one to us first or whatever, you wouldn't send it directly to Europe. What I would do is if you sent me something that was uh, a brass band arrangement, um, I wouldn't, um, I, I would say, you know, we're, we're currently not doing it or whatever, but I would recommend that you send it or I would send it to our office in the UK and see if they want to publish it. Because sometimes they publish things that we don't or whatever, or they take something that we've done, we send them the files and they kind of tweak it to fit their own market. So that's what I would do. We're kind of the, the, the conduit or whatever. It would come through uh, the LA office and then if it was something that we thought that one of our um, European offices or whatever would like, I would send it to them. Yeah, I can go on to self-publishing. <laughs> um, okay, so obviously self-publishing is a, is a huge topic and I'm asked all the time what, what the advantages and disadvantages are. The advantages, obviously, are you can publish what you'd like, especially something that has been rejected by a major publisher. Um, you own the copyright. Um, you have, obviously, more creative control um, over the final product. And, you know, the royalty percentage would certainly be higher because you can take back what it, what, you know, or charge whatever you want. The disadvantages, though, however, is that you're paying out of pocket for all the expenses, recording, engraving, um, art, um, design, printing, postage um, to mail those. 
Um, you've got less quality control as a result of inexperience in proofing, copy editing, engraving, design, knowledge of the market, etc. Um, you have no, somebody who's self-publishing something has no established sales or marketing mechanism to get their product out there. Um, they're not able to display um, product at major clinics and conventions worldwide. Um, they don't have the ability to be able to get their product into the dealer network, which is enormous. That's what you want to do. How do you get it in Guitar Center, Sam Ash, J.W. Pepper? Where, where does that come from? Um, uh, you know, I think most folks will approach a major publisher. It, it, it's funny, they'll, they'll you know, say, well, I want to publish it myself, and they'll do it. And then about uh, a year later, I'll get a call saying, you know, kind of been doing this for a year. I haven't had much success. You know, I'm kind of tired of the books being stacked in my garage. I'm tired of having to drive to the post office and stuff envelopes and stuff. Are you interested in taking it over? Um, so I think that uh, initially the idea of self-publishing is a good one and it's an attractive one. It, it doesn't last long because of all the other things that, um, that I've mentioned. Um, you know, the other thing is that because of production costs, uh, to produce your own book or whatever, you may not realize a profit ever by doing it yourself. And like I mentioned before, if you go with a major publisher to 10% um, you know, a 10% royalty on a retail price, you're getting paid a royalty from the very first book that you, um, that you publish. Here, here's the, the, the problem for me with self-publishing now is that everybody's doing it. I mean, you all have seen YouTube and stuff and how somebody will, you know, put a microphone or a camera uh, in front of their desk chair with them and a guitar and they're going to sing their song and post it and stuff. There's so much of that out there that it's just impossible to weed through who are the legitimate ones, what are the really good books, and what are the ones that are just being released out there for, for the hell of it. And it's, it's killing our industry because uh, even though they don't have the muscle power, even though they don't have the bandwidth and, and the net to, um, you know, that we have or whatever, the analogy that I use is if you've got a thousand drum teachers out there and they each have their own individual way of teaching and stuff and want to do their own book, they can all self-publish their book. I mean, um, you know, everybody's got finale now. Everybody's got InDesign. It's very hard to tell uh, a published book from an unpublished book nowadays. And so what they'll do is they'll put it on their internet. They'll, um, you know, advertise it on their website. They'll um, make, approach their local music store, which I recommend that they do. And that music store will carry it for probably a percentage of the sales or whatever. So. You, even if they only sell 50 copies of that drum book or whatever, 50 copies times a thousand teachers who are writing drum books is a hell of a lot of books that are being sold and taken away from the majors. And the problem is, is that some people know what they're doing and a lot of people don't quite frankly. It's kind of like, you know, they want to be the jack of all trades, but the master of none. That's why, and it's a problem industry-wide. That's why we have A&R people. That's why we have editors, people who know the business, people who are skilled in making decisions, people who knows who know what works for the publisher, people who have degrees and who are um, also successful in their own right as authors or whatever. They're there to, to, to kind of lend their expertise to it. If somebody is just doing it in their home office or whatever and then taking it to Kinko's and binding it and then putting it up on the web, it just, first of all, the market is so 
saturated? How do you even begin to weed through it? And you lose the quality control, quite frankly. Any questions regarding self-publishing or? Yeah, well, the cost is diminished. I mean, just because somebody does something on, you know, finale whatever, doesn't mean it's print ready because there are a lot of things, default mechanisms and stuff that finale has in terms of, you know, stem direction or whatever, but it doesn't know all of them. It doesn't uh, take into account how style, how, uh, you know, we use, um, you know, numbers or how we uh, abbreviate things. It doesn't take into account page turns. It doesn't take into account stem directions and odd passages, especially when you're dealing with, you know, complicated piano music. So yes, we have um, the finale files or whatever, but it still takes, um, you know, somebody to go through it and clean those files up and organize it in a way that uh, makes sense for us. And you've got the copyright title and the, the, all, all the other stuff that goes with it. So it's not send it in, let's slap a cover on it and send it out. There's, there's still quite a bit of work to do. Yeah. No, we, we do that. If we, all of our band, orchestra, choral music or whatever, when we select something for publication or whatever, we bear the entire cost of that product, which is why we are so careful and selective about what we do. So we talked about Pete Berenberg. Pete is a, a jazz band editor at Alfred. And so when he chooses his 60 publications or whatever, he goes into a studio in Washington, D.C. with all um, the best uh, military band players or whatever, and he records those 60 pieces, which then are edited and announcements are put out, and then it's put on a CD and then mailed to 30,000 jazz band directors. And the same with the book. If I'm doing a drum book or we're doing some other kind of book or whatever that has a DVD or CD that uh, goes with it, we are responsible for the cost of that CD or that DVD. Again, which is why we are so careful about making decisions on what to publish or whatever, because the, the expenses can be exorbitant. I mean, a, a, a DVD shoot can be, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. Yeah, there's a clause in the contract or whatever that I think um, we were taking 25% or whatever. It's not the full return, but yes, yeah, so there's a clause in there that if a music store you know, returns X, number, X amount of books or whatever that, you know, that percentage or a certain percentage of that, I think it's 25%, not the full percentage, uh, can be deducted from your royalties. That, that's correct. They're, they're promotional recordings. They're full professional recordings of those pieces, but we don't sell them. It's, it's you know, we package them in a, a booklet that has maybe the first two pages of the score and a description, the grade level and stuff and then the CD that correlates with it. And that is mailed to about 30,000 or, or so band directors, choir directors, or, or whatever, but it's promotion. And now what we've started to do and what publishers have started to do is put them on the download side. If somebody wants to purchase them down the line or whatever, it's like 99 cents or whatever, and they can download it and purchase it. But the ones that we send out are all free. It's, it, it's a promotional vehicle to sell the product. Basically, I I have a whole section here. That was a perfect segue. How did you know? <laughs> okay, so the, the, the next thing here is you know distributor versus publisher. I mean, it's going more and more that way, and it's really pretty advantageous to both the publisher and the person 
who is um, submitting the piece. First of all, in a dis distribution deal or whatever, we don't have the risk of the expenses to produce that product or whatever. We just simply take it on or whatever and put it in our mechanism or whatever. Now, the royalty percentage there is a little different. If we own the copyright, it's 10% of the retail price like we've, we've talked about. If it's a distribution thing, it's a 70-30% break on net sales, not retail sales. So. Um, the, the, the person whose piece it is would be 70%, we would take 30% of net. And it's, and it's done the same way that you're providing us with a finished book, a, uh, a, a, you know, a finished product or whatever. We include it on our uh, recording, we put it in our dealer network, we new issue it, we take it to conventions and, and clinics and stuff. So you get the marketing um, part of it or whatever, but you retain the um, the copyright and we did that with um, Pat Williams last year. We published five or six of his pieces off the Aurora album, and he kept the the um, uh, the copyright or whatever, and basically licensed us the, the 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 tunes and stuff. We used the recordings off of the Aurora album. He provided us with uh, his his copyist Terry Whitson provided us with the PDFs and stuff. We printed out the sets and stuff in which. He'll get a, a royalty on that, but in that case, he owns his material. We're just the distributor, and that that's a great way. Um, that's a great way to, to get started, or whatever. Because you know, a publisher nowadays is more likely to enter into a distribution deal because of the um, lack of expense associated with it. If it does well, everybody wins. If it doesn't, then you know you haven't spent a lot of money up front or whatever to produce a prop. Uh, product. So I, you know, I, I'm totally for, um, you know, anybody approaching us for a distribution thing. Now, the caveat is, is that we're, most publishers aren't looking for one-offs or whatever. We don't want a thousand people sending us their pieces or whatever. We're looking for, you know, a catalog or somebody that's got several pieces or, um, you know, a, a small publisher that's got 10 or 15 books or whatever. In Pat's case or whatever, he had all these tunes from the Aurora album, so it wasn't a one-off thing. It was, you know, several selections from one from one album. But that's a, that's definitely a way to go, and it's a, it's a good way to go because everybody wins. Oh, boy, that's a, <laughs> that's a can of worms because, you know, the church market is just all over the place. You have you know, the contemporary Christian market and, you know, the praise band kind of thing. And then you have, um, you know, the Baptist market, which is a whole different thing. And it's, it's um, you know, we, we have that. We just got out of that business because it's so varied and stuff. But what the, the problem with church music is um, that they all require the directors or, or, or um, teachers or whatever want nicely orchestrated recordings and stuff. So if you have uh, a musical, a church musical, or a church um, Easter thing, or a Christmas thing, or whatever, you know, there's the, the elaborate orchestrations and the recordings that come with it. And so just because of the cost of the recordings, it becomes so prohibitive to do that. And the church market is also um, fading because when the economy kind of tanked in 2008, you know, churches get money from their congregation, from donations that their congregations make. And when the economy tanked in 2008, you know, a lot of the, the congregation, you know, those people were out of work or had part-time jobs and couldn't, um, you know, contribute to the church as much as they 
um, wanted to. So a lot of people started using um, pre-recordings and, and tracks and, and stuff like that to play during services with you know a singer playing along with it. But it's the the church market is all over the place, and you know we, we're kind of take the general road or whatever. But you have like um, Shawnee, and you have all you know. Um, uh, Ubalate or whatever, who specialize specifically in a certain kind of church market because it's so very, it, it's a hard nut to crack, that one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.